My name is Dr. Ethel Tunkelhun. I'm a writer, a researcher, an associate professor of politics, and an activist. This is Academic Andes. As I record this, it's been about a week since we observed the 34th anniversary of the École Polytechnique shooting. For our listeners outside of Canada, this was an anti-feminist mass shooting where the shooter blamed feminists for the challenges that he was facing. The sad thing is that this horrendous crime isn't a thing of the past. Just this year, there have been many more acts of violence against women and racialized faculty, students, and staff. On June 28, 2023, in Waterloo, Canada, we saw what was deemed a hate-motivated incident related to gender expression and gender identity, that's a quote, when a man targeted and entered a class called Gender Issues and stabbed the course instructor and two students. And as recently as last week, at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, a man shot and killed three racialized faculty members and harmed one more. Reporting has revealed that these murders occurred after the perpetrator posted a 16-page document identifying 20 specific educators and listing his grievances about the state of higher education. While these are just two prominent examples of physical violence perpetrated against academics, we also know that so many more are victims of persistent cases of doxing, cyber harassment, and cyber bullying. In the past month alone, I've had separate conversations with three friends, all women, two of whom are racialized, regarding the severe cyber harassment that they are facing because of their support for Palestine. That's why we're talking about safety on university campuses on the podcast. Last week, we talked about the violence that we face with Dr. Rebecca Major. She talked about the toll such violence takes on faculty members and our families and provided a step-by-step account of what we should do if ever we face violence. This week, we continue our search for systemic safety on campus with Dr. Fadi Shenuda. Fadi was extensively cyber harassed in the wake of an article that he and a colleague published on Ozempic, an article that rightly criticized a right-wing political pundit's contention that Ozempic is great because then fatness can disappear. Right-wing news outlets picked up this article and circulated it. Trolls on social media followed suit, spreading hateful messages about Fadi, which they also directed towards him. What do we do when institutions do not have an organized response in the face of such cyber harassment? What are the different parts of the institution that have competing agendas, agendas which may actually paradoxically lead them to work against the interests of those facing violence? And what does a safe university look like? Fadi and I discuss these questions and more in our conversation. Have a listen. It is such an honor to have Dr. Fadi Shenuda joining us today to talk about the very important issues of harassment in the academy. Hi, Fadi. How are you today? Hi, thank you. I'm very good. Thank you for having me on the show. It's the end of term. And before we started recording, Fadi and I were like, we're feeling really sick. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, we're both under the weather, but, you know, uh, I feel like this conversation will be a pickup. Would you like to introduce yourself to our listeners? Yeah. So my name is Fadi Shinuda. I use he, him pronouns. I'm an assistant professor at the Feminist Institute of Social Transformation at Carleton University. For those who are blind or have low vision, and I know this is a podcast, but I still like describing myself visually for folks. I'm fat and tan and cisgender. I have long brown hair. 
and I wear glasses. And the new pair I just got is green and transparent, and I love them. Awesome. That's great. Today I'm wearing, I found, I, I bought these new glasses actually. They're like, I don't know, I would say like square shaped kind of yeah. pink. They're very like vintage y. So when I first tried them on after I got the lenses, I feel like I look like my Lola Teresa in the 70s. <laughs> so I'm not sure. I'm just like, hmm, I'm not sure what that is. But I, I no, you're I, rocking them. Am I rocking them? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> totally. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I'm tan, have black hair, and my hair is up in a bun, and I'm just kind of wearing a Korean white sweater. Uh, so, Fady, just kind of jumping into the topic of conversation, it's been quite an intense few months, right? It um has. Yeah. uh, And as I mentioned in the intro, the summer, you were extensively cyber harassed. What do you make of that moment in time for you? And how are you feeling now? Yeah, that moment in time was chaos. You know, it was filled with fear and panic and anger. And I think the anger was directed really at the institution's ineffectiveness. I had sort of become resigned, I think, to my fate, if you will. There was some triumph sort of bristling deep down. The triumph was like, you know, this article I wrote about Ozempic was making an impact. There was getting attention. It was making waves, which is sort of all what we want from our work, that it is read. But the attacks weren't about the arguments I was making or that Michael and I, my co-author and I, had made about the piece. They were about my character and my body-mind and my gender and my size. And so I think really the overwhelming emotion at the time was fear. I was afraid of like personal and professional repercussions. I was afraid of retaliation, especially because at this moment in the summer, the Waterloo incident has just happened where faculty and students were attacked because they were in a women and gender studies course. And I'm situated in a women and gender studies institute. And so there was fear of a copycat incident, I think, in many women and gender studies departments across Canada, but specifically, I think, because our institute had been named uh, in the online harassment. And I didn't know at the time, (laughs) I learned this much later, and this is sort of advice I would give to anyone in the future, like, don't read it, right? I read everything. I read the tweets and the emails and the images, mainly because I was trying to monitor it, right, for anyone who was going to, wanted to participate in sort of a copycat incident. So I read everything. You're not supposed to do that. And reading all that hate isn't good for you, right? It's terrible. There are things I've read that I will never forget. And that stuff sits with you. It like lingers. And there's no other way to describe these experiences but traumatic. Um, and, and then I say like the, the, you know, the anger is at the institution's ineffectiveness because it became very clear as time went on, this really needed to become an opportunity for systemic change, institution-wide change. We needed to install corrective measures, you know, new protocols, safety buffers that aligned with our politics, and really to remind the institution of its responsibility for creating a safe and harassment-free workplace. And that's a lot of labor. That's a lot of labor. And as you were talking, I was thinking about the toll it must have taken for you to read all the tweets because you wanted to make sure that there was no copycat attack happening (laughs) because this all happened in the wake of Waterloo. But also 
the additional stress of trying to get the institution to respond. What were some of yes. the mechanisms or some of the things that you tried to do to get the institution to protect you? Yeah, I tried everything I could think of. I couldn't have imagined the utter lack of support following incidents like this at my institution. I thought at the time, surely this has happened to other faculty at my institution. And of course it had, right? Of course it had happened. It happened to many people. I've now learned that, of course, this happens to so many of us. Surely there had been a protocol in place because I'm not the first to experience. Surely someone would help me with my socials, could give me advice, could take the burden of dealing with the tech at the same time that people are disparaging me and my beliefs, right? Someone could at least take on that small burden. And that really, like, did not exist. Every time I met someone that first week it happened, I'd ask them for support in the online space. I, I remember specifically asking for media training because I didn't really know what else to ask for, thinking that media training meant someone would also teach me like cyber harassment protocols or doxing protocols. And of course, that's not what they teach you when you do cyber harassment, when you do media training. It's not part of, but of course it should be, right? Like it should absolutely be part of it. And, you know, because our, our online presence is essentially a requirement for faculty in the 21st century, we are constantly being asked to engage in public scholarship, which I think is really important. I'm not saying we should stop that. But it means that the university has to have the expertise in place when things go south. And I learned that they don't. Calling campus security or the police if you're doxxed is not a protocol. It does not make a protocol. And so the cyber harassment started on Monday. And by Friday, I had essentially spoken to our admin, my chair, the dean, a graduate program director, campus security, the university provost, the Department of University Communications, lawyers at labor relations, the union. The next week I spoke to the head of the campus security services, the office of risk management. I did my due diligence. I sounded the alarm, right? And said, Hey, like shit is happening. And this is a place I work and it is your responsibility to do something. And I've learned later that many people don't do that. You know, I think many people take this on by themselves, right? I think many people don't see the university as like its role in this as one that's supportive. And maybe that's probably because the university has failed them in the past. But, you know, I've heard now stories of people receiving death threats and not going to their deans or faculties or going to the university for support. And again, like I think this is happening to so many of us, especially to women, especially to racialized women, especially to queer and trans scholars, disabled and fat scholars, climate and vaccine scientists. It's anyone with a stake in social and political transformation, right? These are the folks who are being targeted and the university needs to step up. I absolutely agree. I'm thinking of all of the different people and all of the different institutions that you've had to alert to what's happening to you. So what do you mean by like how no one really knew what to do? Can you talk to us a little bit about what you learned about how the different bodies within this institution operated? Yeah, I, I sort of imagine that like the heads of the universities get together at some point, all these people who make all of this money, who have all of this power and decision making, they must come into a room at some point and and talk to each other about like how their work is interrelated and interdependent, 
right? I mean, they are running a a non-for-profit organization at a massive scale. I learned that these offices are completely independent and siloed. They do not talk to each other in the way that I imagined it. You know, the campus security has never been in a room with a Department of University Communications uh, to talk about security and communications, <laughs> which is wild to me. Like, how how, to, how does campus security service, which is so useless already, right? Like, if we have to have them, at least let them do something useful, which is relay correct information. You know, the first sort of person I saw at the university that wasn't from my institute was a constable, was a security service person. They took, they gave me an occurrence number, took my name, my phone number, and my address which I was sort of unwilling to give them at the time. You already have that information in my employee file. Why do I have to give that to you now? And then told me that there was nobody on campus who can help me with social media or any form of sort of aid, which is not true. There's an entire department dedicated to that called the Department of University Communications. They monitor the university's online presence to ensure its reputation. So it's, they have the apparatus. It's just not pointed towards faculty. So they did have the resources and they did have the expertise. You know, at the time that this happened, we had a massive administrative shuffle at our university. We had a new president, a new provost, and a new dean in my faculty. And I learned that there's um, essentially no successive planning or no clear evidence of successive planning when there are these clear shuffles. People are put into these new roles and then they're expected to learn on the job. And then when this stuff happens, when shit hits the fan, right, I think they're scrambling, right, because they haven't put in the time and the effort to train folks properly in these incredibly important leadership roles. And you are in charge of thousands of people. You know, I've worked in non-for-profits where people are doing one to two to three years of successive planning for new executive directors. And I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. Yep. Like this happens. Yep in many, many other spaces. And so if you're taking on this role and you're learning on the job and don't expect crises, uh, it's just not helpful for when people actually get caught up in things. So, um, yeah, you know, there was there was a lot of tension, I think, and, and maybe my situation is unique in that way, but I think it was it was made difficult by how discreet the university likes to be, how siloed it is. Yeah, I think everything you're saying is landing with me because I also like it's been almost more than a year, a little bit more than a year when I also got like dog cyber harassed. And like you, I was thinking, well, people are getting paid so much money. I also foolishly thought there was some sort of like administrator group chat yeah. <laughs> or something, right? I'm like, don't you guys, like if crises arise, don't you coordinate, be like, hey, what should we do? But then I find out like you, that it's also siloed, that pretty much people are reactive. When something happens, they react and try to figure out what the solutions are. But there's no kind of system in place to address faculty cyber harassment. And a lot of my colleagues who face this have to individually advocate for themselves, right? Yeah. So one question I have for you is, so you're dealing with all of these different bodies within the institution. Are Were all of them at least supportive or were there some parts of the institution that were not really representing your interests? Yeah, I mean, in in my uh, in my effort to cultivate support, right? I, I I emailed a part of the university on the advice of our administrator called Labor Relations, 
not thinking anything of it, but just like another person that I'm emailing, right? Like the 10th or 12th person. And clearly I was emailing the university lawyers and this person's job is really to protect the university from from faculty, right? From their employees. And so it became it became an employment issue, right? And it became an opportunity to tell me how they have done everything correct up until this point. It became them writing me a letter with clear timelines and deadlines for when and how I needed to ask for support. It was signed by the dean and it, it was sent to nine different people at the same time, many of whom I'd never heard of before, including the provost. So it went to the top of the university. And so interesting that the university's response is to just to protect right? And be like, we've provided you with a therapist. And I'm like, I don't need one of those. I got one. Yeah. I got one of those. Do you want to pay for my therapist? Like that would be helpful rather than getting me to get a new one. You know, there were so many things like I didn't bring the union in until they brought in their lawyers. Right. Because at that point I had just felt so degraded by this person, right. Who called me and then who wrote this letter and I've communicated this also to the dean that I thought the letter was totally inappropriate for the moment. And in every subsequent meeting where this person was present, I asked them not to speak. Good so for I you. really did sort of put my foot down, <clears throat> excuse me, that like I will not be treated this way when, and I won't be talked to like this. If they want this person here, that's totally fine, but that person doesn't have the right to speak. Let's unpack this a little bit because I think everything you're seeing is landing with me as well. Because I feel like I contacted kind of the chair, associate dean of faculty affairs, campus security, of course, although campus yep. security was like, we have to come up with a safety plan. Oh, wait, it's all emails anyway and all like tweets. So you're not going to like die. <laughs> you know, what I mean? like that. I mean, I'm being flippant, but that was the response. And I was like, are you, are you like sure? <laughs> like, yeah. do you know what I mean? Like, just because it's online doesn't mean it's not serious, right? So I talked to these people, but I also got a similar dismissive response uh, from folks who are essentially like university lawyers, right? Mm. And then I realized, whoa, 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 hold up. Not everyone has my interest at heart. And their interest, it seemed to me, was to make sure that I don't go against the university. So they wanted to outline that they followed protocol. And then that Precisely. kind of made me reach the epiphany. And it's been something that's kind of tried at this point. The institution doesn't love us, right? I'm just like, okay. So, okay, so you, you, you met all of these different bodies. You met all of these different administrators. What was the resolution? Like at the end of it, did you feel safe? Did you feel protected? Like, how were you, how were you making sense of this all? Yeah, I mean, I, I have to give credit where credit is due that our new dean did learn on the job and learned incredibly, incredibly fast. And credit is owed to her and her team. They, they went into action all the things that we requested, which I won't detail here because it is like a safety plan and I sort of don't want it in the public. Many of the things that we requested have been installed in our space and, you know, things have been changed university-wide as well to protect us. Many universities have taken their schedules off of public information, so not anyone anywhere can know where our classes are. We've also asked that we're prioritized when scheduling happens so that we're not in the basement of a building on the outskirts of campus, that we're more centralized. So these things have been put into place, and but it required all of this work, plus two or three meetings with the dean, plus two or three meetings with campus security, plus two or three meetings 
with the Office of Risk Management. And oh my God, the staff, what just like the most incredible, absolutely brilliant people pay them everything because they, you know, they're the ones who are also there from nine to five. And so they're the ones who are also at risk the most. Like, because I, I can hop in and out, right? I'm in class, but they're in the office that's marked clear and labeled women and gender studies. And so we have to think about them and their safety as well. It's not just our students. It's not just faculty. It's also all the staff. I think, and this is something we'll address, I think, in future episodes of Academic Antis, especially in light of kind of the politically volatile situation that universities are finding themselves in and people's stances with respect to, for example, Palestine, especially staff members who have different unionized contracts. One thing I'm witnessing, too, is that staff members don't have, many of them don't have the same protections faculty members have, and so they get fired because because of these kind of perceived transgressions. And I'm using that with quotation marks. So you're right in that you know, we need to also account for admin and staff and think about kind of their interests and their needs and their safety too. Can I yeah. ask with respect to kind of this, you know, you, you talk to the Department of Communications, right? They're monitoring social media. I am also a faculty member who, it is the nature of her job. We have to be public facing. And one of the ways to do that is through having like an active social media profile, but like no one has trained me. I just tweet. Are there things that they shared with you with respect to faculty members needing to protect ourselves online that our listeners would benefit from learning from? Yeah, absolutely. I learned a lot of things in the process of talking to other people who had been cyber harassed and docked what to do. And also from the Department of University Communications, I learned that I should totally have a totally different profile when having anything with social media. It should not be your personal account. None of the you should totally have it separate account and that separate account should have a separate email so you know i've now created a totally separate email and totally separate online presence even though i'm sort of not online anymore it still seems like a potentially hostile space i learned that when things happen like this you should create a folder on your on your email account so all the messages go there and you don't have to read them and then you can send that to security services or to you know, departments of university communications or whatever they're called at your institution so that they can take a look over. I learned that death threats should be monitored by the university email. They should, they, they comb through our emails for things like that. I learned that, you know, you should lock your, lock your Twitter account, shut down all your social media accounts immediately or or block them. You know, they did a total audit on all of my social media accounts. And for one of them, I was, you know, a simple teeny tiny like unprofessional amateur hacker right away from my phone number and a lot of like personal information being leaked and so if to tell faculty like right now if you're using an account like i was that's one one you built when you were in like first year uni um get on it right get on it now and find out is your cell phone number on there is your personal email on there change those things now before you make that public scholarship oh my god yes um yeah and so you know i I learned a lot of things through this process and again like this should be i've made a request that this be part of new faculty orientation right if you're part of but i also think like postdocs need this right like i think our phd students need this information they're doing more public scholarship than ever and i think people are people especially who are doing sort of a very critical or work need this information and need this training and that the institution needs to provide it. 
I agree a hundred percent. Fidi, who was your source of support during this time? Like this is effing intense. Like like this is like I'm shaking my head. Like, did community ground you? Who who supported you? You know, as someone who is in community all the time and who works within like a disability justice framework, I really shouldn't be surprised that my saving grace through this was community, right? I immediately sent a text or a, like a WhatsApp message to this pre-tenure track group that I'm a part of and immediately got connected with someone who had experienced this. One of my colleagues told me about an expert in our journalism department here, of course, one of the best journalism departments in the country at Carleton, and someone who's actually done research, funded research through Shirk about this, who who set me up with information. I found support from colleagues at my institution, from colleagues at many other places, you know, across the province. And that's when I learned that this sort of happened to many of us. And I'm indebted, like, to that community for their both their technological and emotional support during this time. You know, if this happens to you, I think go to your community, of course. But I don't think community should really be a substitute for the university's legal obligation to provide a safe and harassment-free workplace. Community cannot replace the role of the university with all of its many, many resources. And but we really need to demand better of the institutions while acknowledging that our communities will always hold us together as we work through these sort of moments of distress. That's such an important point. What does a safe university look like for you? Yeah, this question is such a difficult one. I mean... <laughs> You know, as a scholar of as someone who studies the university and specifically, you know, how ableism and sanism operate in higher education, I've called the university uh, in the past uh, a project of exclusion. The, the institution only started opening up to non-white men uh, in the last 150 years, and it only started admitting to its role and benefit and contributions to things like slavery and cultural genocide maybe two decades ago, and that's only select universities. We're now finally shifting to thinking about accessible pedagogies, and that's again only in pockets of the university. And so the university isn't a safe space for many of us. But for those of us who live and work and study here, it must always strive to becoming a safer space. So I imagine a safe university is one that centers community, is police and security free, holds accountable racist, ableist, and other bad actors in its community, that is geared towards social and political transformation. It's eager to allow as many people interested and committed to learning as possible into its spaces. And that, you know, in reference to this incident, that fights alongside and is willing to protect those of us doing the thinking, the theorizing, the writing, the creating, that leads to reflection and change in the world. And so safety is not more cameras or police. Nope. <laughs> it's a, I think it's a stronger commitment from those at the top to institutionally support in the many, many different ways we need it. Those who are marginalized and doing innovative and critical and justice-oriented work in the many ways. It's in many, many ways that work is also reparative work. Mm. 
I think, to correct the centuries we were excluded from producing knowledge in the university. And so it's the university's role to understand that it has to protect these groups of people who are who are now here, right, and producing really important and critical knowledge. Those are so important. I'm kind of thinking, what would I answer to that question too? Like, it's almost like an unfair question, right? It's like, here. <laughs> it was a hard one. It is, it is a hard question. And, and, I, and I hope I've answered it you to, you know, to some length, but it's, uh, you know, it's, you know, in, in, in this incident was one that I think brought up a lot of tension, right? Because it's like, how do you produce safety when the only things that the university is offering you are things that are not aligned with your politics, right? Do you want more cameras? Do you want more rounds? Do you want to be, they kept offering me to walk me to my car. Ugh. I'm like, I don't need that. I'm I am like physically I don't need that mm-hmm. right and and you know I it, the the issue was not one of safety like that right it was it was safety in so many other ways mm-hmm. you know it was safety online and they could not offer me any extension mm-hmm. any extension of that supposed safety they were not trained right they did not have the capacity to do it and for the university not to put efforts into thinking of security outside of its physical boundaries to me is sort of shocking at this point. Yeah. And I think everything you said about universities, histories of exclusion, right? And how we need to force the university to do reparative work, to really think about it, not just in terms of like, oh, do you want more cameras? You're like, no, absolutely not. Like you're not like thinking within the framework that we're operating under, right? I think that's a really, really really useful reminder of almost different aims of what the universities should look like. I feel like these are at odds. You have different visions of what universities should look like. And I adhere to your university. I support that, right? I don't want, gosh, like at this current moment, with a lot of suppression against pro-Palestine activism, there's so much, there's so many campus cops, right? And I'm just like, no, 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 that's not, that's not my vision of safety, right? And so thinking decolonially, thinking reparatively, these are these are important touchstones. Yeah. And you know, December sixth was, you know, two days ago we're yeah. recording this on December eighth. And December sixth, of course, is when the Ecole yeah. Polytechnique where fourteen women were massacred because they were feminists. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think for lots of women in gender studies departments, this day is incredibly important. For lots of engineering mm. programs, this day is incredibly important. Mm-hmm. And we read the names of these women every year mm. in memoriam to them and to, and to acknowledge the fact that these institutions have not been safe for certain bodies for a very long time. Waterloo was another reminder of that. And so we need new ways of creating safety because your old ways, your cameras and your police, they didn't stop the polytechnique. They didn't stop the Waterloo nope. incident. They mm-hmm. do not work, mm-hmm. right? And I and both of those, you know, were ideological attacks. Mm-hmm. So what does it mean, right, when police can't stop ideological attacks? When in fact, what we need is the work that we're doing, the work of trying to change, to teach people new understanding, to to ask people to participate in unlearning mm. in a way that they are hesitant to do because it's more challenging. 
we need the university to be in support of those work, not just financially, institutionally um, uh, support that work. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Fadi. You've given us a lot to think about. And I hope you get a chance to rest over the holidays because it's been a heck of an intense term for you. Yeah, I'm I, I'm, I'm looking forward to doing nothing and, uh, you know, really participating in the notion of rest is resistance here oh God, yes. over the next uh, over the next little while. I love it. Thank you again. Thank you for inviting me here. And thank you for your podcast. I know many, many people look to this space for knowledge, comfort, joy. So it's a it's real. It's a real pleasure to be on here. Thank you. What bothers me as I reflect on our conversation is how universities have such a limited grasp of what safety means. When safety is understood as an individual concern, then solutions are, by extension, limited too. You're under threat? Go to the police. Let's get more security officers. Let's increase the surveillance apparatus in universities. These solutions assume that increased securitization is the same as actual safety, which is rarely the case. These solutions also assume that physical threats are the most dangerous, ignoring cyber harassment. Instead, institutions should think of ways to train faculty members, students, and staff on creating safety online, using their social media profiles, and they also need to train us on how to guard against doxing. But institutional solutions aren't enough. In fact, we need to remember that there are different interests at play here and different offices within the institution, such as HR and the legal department, that do not necessarily have our interests at heart. What structural changes are needed so we can create a truly safe, decolonial, and abolitionist university? How can we work towards our collective safety and our collective thriving? Those are questions that we're going to continue to strive for answers. And that's Academic Antis for this week. Academic Antis is produced by me, Dr. Ethel Tunkohan, Wayne Chu, and Dr. Anisha Nath. Follow us on all social media. We're at Academic Anti on Twitter and at Academic Antis everywhere else. Rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. And email us anytime at podcast at academicantis.com. Tune in next time when we talk to more academic aunties. Until then, take care, be kind to yourself, and don't be an asshole. <laughs>